This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Is modern racism a product of secularization and the decline of Christian universalism? The debate has raged for decades, but up to now, the actual racial views of historical atheists and freethinkers have never been subjected to a systematic analysis. In his new book, Race in a Godless World, Atheism, Race, and Civilization, 1850-1914, Nathan Alexander sets out to correct the oversight. The book centers on Britain and the United States in the second half of the 19th century, a time when popular atheist movements were emerging and skepticism about the truth of Christianity was becoming widespread. This newly embraced secularization created a paradox. How could Western civilization represent the pinnacle of human progress, as most white atheists accepted, when the majority of these societies still believed in Christianity? The result of this tension was a profound ambivalence regarding issues of racial and civilizational superiority. At times, white atheists assented to scientific racism and hierarchical conceptions of civilization. At others, they denounced racial prejudice and spoke favorably of non-white, non-Western civilizations. Covering racial and evolutionary science, imperialism, slavery, and racial prejudice in theory and practice, Alexander's book provides a much-needed account of the complex and sometimes contradictory ideas espoused by the transatlantic community of atheists and freethinkers. It also reflects on the social dimension of irreligiousness, exploring how working-class atheists' experience of exclusion could make them sympathetic to other marginalized groups. Nathan Alexander is a Canadian historian researching the history of race and racism and the history of atheism and secularization. He finished his PhD at the University of St. Andrews in the UK and was most recently a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Weber Center for Advanced Cultural and Social Studies with the University of Erfurt in Germany. He joins me today to talk about his latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Nathan Alexander to talk about his book, Race in a Godless World, Atheism, Race, and Civilization, 1850 to 1914. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Right. Um, So... Well, I got interested in in uh, the history of race and racism um, during my master's degree, and during that time, actually, I was sort of undergoing a religious transformation. I suppose um, I went from being a Christian to being an atheist around that time. Um, so, uh, when I was doing my master's and working on 
uh, the history of race and racism, I was realizing all of the ways that um, religion intersected with race and, and vice versa. Um, but as I was also realizing that um, there were no real studies looking at um, the ways atheism or um, not unbelief sort of intersected with with race and racism. So that's sort of how I got interested in this topic. And then eventually I would go on to do my PhD about that. Um, and that sort of formed the basis for the book. Okay, fantastic. So first, perhaps outline for us in broad terms the major debate that is at hand here. One side argues that the rise of secularism in the late 19th century was directly responsible for enabling and justifying racist views. And then the other side argues that actually it was Christian beliefs that were more detrimental here. So how does each side elaborate these arguments? Right. Um, So I think I should just say the start, I mean, these are not... These are sort of arguments I've sort of picked up in the secondary literature, but there's not specific arguments saying, you know, on the one side, secularism causes uh, racism or Christianity causes racism. I mean, not not quite so um, explicit as that. Um, but taking, say, taking the first uh, point about secularism um, sort of leading to racism, uh, one could sort of make the argument that uh, in the in the 19th century, in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, sort of Christianity, the foundations of Christianity begin to be questioned. Um, the idea that, um, all humans are, uh, created by God, um, created in the image of God, that every, all humans descend from Adam and Eve directly. Um, these are all beginning to be questioned. And, uh, some people are thinking of humans in terms of, um, being part of the natural world, um, being just like any other um, species of animal. And so this leads some thinkers to argue that, you know, perhaps humanity is divided into different races. And then from there, we can say um, different races uh, might be superior or inferior to each other. Um, so this is sort of one, one way you can argue that uh, secularism or the decline of religious authority opens the way to uh, thinking about um, race and sort of hierarchical terms that it opens the way for racism. So that's one side sort of of the, of the story. <clears throat> but um, on the other hand, uh, people could argue, actually, um, it was Christianity that, uh, that sort of paved the way for, for racism so you could point to the ways in which um, the Bible justifies slavery uh, in a different in different ways. How this urge to uh, proselytize to spread the gospel around the world, how this can lead to imperialism, how this can lead to viewing um, other cultures, other peoples as as inferior because they don't have, um, you know, they don't share the same religion. They share a quote unquote inferior religion. Um, yeah, so all of these, and and also I should, and also this um, Christianity's long history of anti-Semitism, um, and the way that this could be um, sort of treated in in biological terms, uh, and how yeah how that could could sort of lead to uh, thinking in terms of uh, distinct sort of races. Um, so yeah, so there there are these two kind of competing uh, theories. 
So give us a sense of the cultural context in this period as well. Um, what important developments were going on in the world that may have had a significant impact on these issues? So, so I should say my, my two, um, the two countries that I'm looking at are Britain and the U.S. Um, so in the 19th century, uh, the big contexts are sort of the rise of, of imperialism. Um, of course, uh, European countries had been um, sort of expanding around the world uh, for the uh, previous centuries. But really in the 19th century, this really begins to ramp up, um, especially you know, new technology enables um, more and more conquests. Um, in the U.S., uh, well, slavery um, exists, obviously, and then it's, uh, uh, it stops after the Civil War. And so there, there is debates about um, how to uh, integrate um, uh the descendants or former slaves or the descendants of slaves into um, into the society and what what rights they should be given and so on. Um, so that's one one sort of context. And the other context is sort of the, the religious context um, that in the late 19th century we see a growing uh, movement of, of atheists and other sorts of non-believers. Um, so they're, they're beginning to become more outspoken. Um, they're they're forming organizations, and they've got um, newspapers and books and things that are are putting out their arguments um, in a way that really didn't happen uh, before in such an explicit way. So I want to go back to um, uh, one of the issues at hand that you kind of already alluded to, and that's about the uh, origins of humanity, whether you take a Christian view about uh, Adam and Eve versus a uh, Darwinistic view or an evolutionary view uh, of something else. So so tell us, what are monogenesis and polygenesis? Which groups advocated for which side in this debate? And what do these competing narratives have to do with racism? Right. So monogenesis means um, single origin and polygenesis means uh, multiple origins. So uh, monogenesis is sort of a, uh, a theory that says, you know, all, all of humanity has a single origin. Um, all, all races have a single origin. And typically in the sort of the Christian view, this is an Adam and Eve. Um, they're the literal ancestors of all of humanity. Um, on the other side is is polygenesis, which says that they are distinct human groups. Um, they're not; they all have a separate origin, so they're not related to each other. Um, so they're they're permanently separate, and um, this this means, for example, that um, uh, members of a different races couldn't um, procreate together, or they would produce offspring that are um in some ways defective or something like this um so obviously so the, this polygenesis view it goes against the christian view because it's it's sort of denying that that all humans are descended from adam and eve and that's that's the christian view um and it 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 poses a further challenge because if that's true if if it's true that adam and eve uh aren't aren't the parents of all of humanity um the original sin that that Adam Adam and Eve commit in the Garden of Eden doesn't 
doesn't get passed down to all of humanity. And therefore, um, Jesus' salvation also doesn't get passed down to all of humanity, only to, you know, a select few of these um, direct ancestors of, of Adam. So, um, so this debate has implications for, for race, but also for um, theology. Uh, so this means, um, yeah, uh, you know, Christians typically support uh, monogenesis and atheists are, they're interested in exploring sort of polygenesis because it, it does sort of cast out on the Adam and Eve story and more generally the entire uh, foundation of Christianity. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's also possible to have a sort of monogenesis in a secular way. But maybe we can get into that uh, later. Yeah, let's talk about uh, a little in more detail about Charles Darwin and how he figures into this picture. Um, so, how did atheists in the nineteenth century incorporate these ideas into their understanding of race? Right. So, um, yeah. So, so Darwin, um, Darwin was a uh, an unbeliever uh, in Christianity. Um, and so he and he he put forward this uh, idea of evolution that was um, a kind of monogenesis. So he definitely didn't believe in uh, like the literal uh, truth that Adam and Eve um, were the parents of all of humanity. Um, but he did have have this idea that all of humans and indeed all all species had a single origin. Like we all share a common ancestor. Uh, although this is um, naturalistic and not um, not not religious, um, so so definitely uh, atheists were were able to sort of use uh, Darwin's ideas um, because they did undermine uh, sort of the idea that um, humanity was was created specifically uh, or especially by God. So they're interested in Darwin's theories, and they they did incorporate evolution into their into their arguments. But it's also true that um, one can have uh, ideas about evolution that are um, sort of informed by polygenesis as well. So you could argue that um, different um, different species of ape of apes were the ancestors of different races, so that um, Evolution is still true. It's just that there are sort of separate pathways um, to each human race. Or you could argue that um, humanity had a single origin, but nonetheless, um, soon after humans evolved, they they took very different evolutionary paths. And this leads to um, the development of different races. So so this sort of preserves a kind of polygenesis within evolution. but some, I mean, but some atheists were also uh, follow, obviously followers of Darwin and their the sort of this idea of a kind of secular monogenesis. If I recall correctly, you kind of found that uh, you could take whichever belief you wanted and mold it to fit whatever your views were on race to begin with, right? Yeah, I think I think that's yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, also um, sometimes the views, you know, they're not totally coherent even sort of within the same thinker you know they people pick and choose um different aspects of of uh you know theories that they like and you know some some people liked darwin but they said nonetheless i think 
Um, you know, I agree with Darwin, but I do think he's wrong about um, all races having a single origin. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, it really does does come down in part to like, you know, what, what argument you sort of want to make about race. And then you'll um, find find the evidence and theories that um, you want to have supporting that. Right. Um, and you write that Darwin's theories influenced people's ideas about the development of civilizations as well, almost maybe close to what we would call social Darwinism today. So can you tell us what was going on here? Yeah, so um, so people yeah, in the 19th century were sort of looking out at, at the world and different, different societies. And this, well, actually this idea goes back to the Enlightenment that basically that there's sort of a single path that every society takes, you know, you begin as a hunter gatherer, then you develop agriculture, then you, you uh, industrialize, and then you sort of develop a modern society. So basically people, people at this time sort of thought that there was kind of a linear path um, that, that uh, civilizations took. And so thinkers at this time um, looked around and, um, you know, identified uh, societies around the world that, and said, you know, they're at different levels of civilization, like they're on different, different pathways to, um, to like a modern society. Um, so, and, and, and yeah, people in the 19th century, like particularly after Darwin began to sort of um, incorporate the idea of like a natural selection uh, into the way societies develop. So, um, you know, if a society faced struggles this might be a way in which they could advance to a higher level of civilization. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's how sort of uh, evolution kind of fits into the way people look at um, civilizations around the world. And you discovered perhaps a rather surprising sense of affinity felt by atheists with what they, at the time, deemed the savage races, uh, due to what they felt was a shared persecution at the hands of more powerful Christians. So that must have been a fascinating discovery. Were you surprised by that? Yeah, definitely. I was I was really surprised by that. Um, I mean, I think... I mean, I think, like, when, when someone's studying, you know, race in the 19th century... You know, it's not it's not surprising to find people arguing that you know the one race is superior to another. I mean, that's uh, that's not surprising. But it's really interesting to me, like, to find that these um, white atheists were really sort of going against the grain of their society and saying, and against the grain of these ideas that that said, um, you know, savage quote unquote savage races are are inferior. Um, these these atheists were actually saying, you know, well, actually, maybe maybe there's some positive um, uh, virtues to these these so-called savage uh, groups, and so uh, particularly, um, well, it, it happened that many many um, atheists in the 19th century came from the working classes, so they're um, you know they're they're a bit poorer than the the rest of society and and they see that you know they're living in a very unjust unjust society um and they're looking out at these um again quote unquote savage groups um but they say you know the, the, these societies look a lot more egalitarian than than their own and so they're thinking like maybe maybe this these societies are actually in some way superior to ours 
they've got um, you know more pure ideas about about charity and and sort of ensuring everyone um, you know everyone benefits equally in a society um, and so on. So yeah, so that was definitely a big surprise to come across this um, this sort of dialogue. I really I didn't I didn't expect it really. So do you think it's fair to call these atheists anti-imperialist or anti-colonial, or is that too strong? I think it might be a bit too strong. Definitely they were, I think they're sort of skeptical of imperialism. Like they're, they're definitely questioning whether, whether it was the right thing to sort of, um, you know, trample over these cultures and impose Western lifestyle. Definitely they, they definitely didn't like, Christian missionaries doing that. Um, but I think, uh, while they were skeptical, I think there's also um, some who, who nonetheless thought they believed in more, more a sort of secular civilizing uh, project. So they didn't want to see the people, people in these other societies um, convert to Christianity, but they wouldn't mind seeing them you know, adopt a sort of secular, secular lifestyle or worldview. Um, so I do think it it would be too much to say they're you know completely opposed to anti or to imperialism, but they were definitely skeptical of it and more more skeptical than their their contemporaries. Hmm, interesting. So you write that Western atheists also took a decidedly different attitude from their Christian compatriots towards India, China, and the Far East. So how do they understand the Eastern religions and cultures? It's it's really interesting because, well, they, they see these kind of Eastern religions um, as, well, in some sense, they, they see them more as sort of secular worldviews. So like Confucianism in in China, they they don't see this really as a, a supernatural religion, but more of just someone um, sort of like more of an ethical system, an ethical guide to life. Um, and even like Buddhism, um, again, they see they see that not as necessarily a supernatural religion, but more as a ethical philosophy, I suppose. So it's it's quite interesting again that you know in, in the nineteenth century, I guess most of um, most of say like white white people in Britain and in the US might you know look down on these these other eastern cultures but again uh atheists saw them as in some ways uh compatriots i guess that they both shared a sort of a secular um ethical ethical mindset um yeah but i mean and that that sort of um well, they, they, um, and they, they also sort of identified um, free thinkers in, in these societies to other sort of non-believers, um, and they report on um, the positive reception of of uh, atheists or other sorts of uh, scientific works, for example, in in these societies. So I think they, yeah, they saw them as as in some ways quite similar to themselves. Interesting. Um, I guess they would have had some degree of contact, actual contact with these 
uh, like I'm thinking India, especially, mm-hmm. obviously Britain was there. Um, I wonder how much contact your average um, American or, or British atheist would have had with China or, or cultures of the Far East. Yeah. Was this speculation from afar or? Yeah, I think it probably, it probably was. Um, yeah, definitely is true. Like you know, India is, um, there was more, uh, more direct experience, I suppose, with, with India, um, given that, you know, people could, could travel there and, and vice versa, that there were lots of Indians, um, living in, living in Britain. Um, but actually, so yeah, I do, I do think, yeah, like, uh, accounts in, of China and Japan, like probably these are second account, secondhand accounts of, of people who've traveled there or, or in cases of, um, uh, people from China or Japan going to um, uh, the U.S. or Britain. Um, there was, I mean, there are there are cases. So, and a really interesting one that I found is this guy from China called uh, Wang Chin Fu. So he was um, he was born in China, and he but he was raised by American missionary parents. Um, but then, he, like as he grew up, he went to the U.S. Um, and he was a Christian there, but he, he soon lost his faith and became a free thinker. And actually, um, you know, it, it's funny because he gave, he, he called himself um, like the first like missionary, like secular missionary or something from China to the, to the, uh, to the U.S. Um, and he wrote um, an article in, or a, I guess a series of articles in the North American Review in the late 19th century. Um, it's called why, why I am a heathen. And there he's sort of talking about, um, you know, why, well, he uses the term heathen sort of ironically, because that's what, you know, Christians call, you know, non, non-Christian peoples. Um, but he, he sort of makes an argument for kind of a secular, secular sort of worldview. Um, so it's, I mean, it is true then that, you know, that, uh, direct information about some of these countries is not not available, but it, but there are cases of of like like Wan Chinfu of, of actual Chinese people coming to the U.S. or, or to Britain and and speaking about um, their their backgrounds and and sort of uh, in his case uh, like his secular sort of free thinking worldview. And and this is what I think makes your next chapter so interesting because um, it's almost like where the rubber meets the road, right? About their racial ideas. Clearly, white atheists have a wide variety of really interesting ideas about race and science. Some of them more objective and evidence based than others, um, but maybe it is kind of in the abstract, right? And so, um, what about African Americans? Um, uh, what were the white atheist views towards the black folks living among them? Yeah. So before the Civil War, there is. Well, this isn't something I talk about a lot in my book, but but there are um, there are a lot of abolitionists who are free thinkers. Um, so that there's sort of that tradition there before the Civil War, uh, but mostly I focus on the the aftermath of the Civil War um, and what uh, sort of how how. Um, the descendants of slavery are, are sort of re- reintegrated into, into society or not. Um, anyway, so I found that, yeah, like you say, like this is a case where 
it moves beyond sort of abstract theorizing about people halfway around the world. Like these are people within, within one's own borders. So, um, so it is a, a different sort of case. Um, but I found uh, a diversity of views among, among atheists on the one side, there are, there are those who, um, who take a, a more, uh, we'll say racist view that, um, uh, African Americans shouldn't have the right to vote, or it was a mistake to give them the right to vote. Um, that you know, segregation is is okay, and and things like this. Um, but again, I did find uh, strong cases of of atheists speaking out against uh, these racist ideas, speaking out against um, lynching, for example, or against uh, the ways. Uh, new civil rights after after the end of the Civil War um, were sort of rolled back um, towards the end of the nineteenth century. So one one key figure here is uh, Robert Ingersoll, who was one of probably the the most famous um, white atheists or agnostic in the the late nineteenth century in the U.S. Um, but he was um, yeah he was quite outspoken about. Uh, defending the rights of African Americans, and yeah, I mean, he he tried to use his his platform to speak out on the on their behalf. Um, yeah, so so there there is this sort of again this this diversity of, of views on on that question. And it seems like um, your research points in the direction that by the turn of the century, atheists had pretty much come down on the side of strongly rejecting scientific racism, embracing instead the role of the environment, say, rather than inherited traits informing personalities. So tell us about that. What evidence did you uncover for this understanding? Yes. Yeah. Particularly by the end of the 19th century, you do see some pretty clear cases of, of atheists, um, arguing explicitly against scientific racism. Um, so just, well, just two, two people I'll talk about quickly. Um, in, in, uh, in Britain, there was this guy called J.M. Robertson, who is uh, Scottish uh, and a free thinker. Um, so he was very much opposed to these ideas of, of scientific racism. And he's, he wrote, wrote a number of uh, works um, arguing against it. I think one, probably the main, the main one is this book called um, "The Saxon and the Celt." When he he sort of argues, uh, like in, in the late nineteenth century, um, there was this idea that um, you know all of history could, or, or or the history of Europe could could be explained by the different sorts of white races who were who were there. Um, so it wasn't the case that all white people were seen as the part part of the same race there were different divisions. So Saxons and Celts and Mediterraneans and, and so on. Um, anyway, uh, in, in this work, um, J.M. Robertson is really uh, criticizing this view and saying that it's a lot more important. Uh, biology is not, is not that important. It's really all about um, your, your environment or your sort of your socio-political context these are the things that really matter and not, not some kind of uh, ideas about different races. Um, so that's Robertson. Uh, 
in the U.S., there was a guy called um, James F. Morton, who was another white atheist uh, active in the free thought scene at the end of the 19th century and the start of the the 20th. And actually, he he wrote this book um, in 1906 called The Curse of Race Prejudice, where he really makes a strong case against, uh, against prejudice based on race and yeah, it does it from a secular perspective. So he, and, and from a Darwinian perspective, you know, he, he says, well, you know, Darwin shows that we're all, um, we're all, we're all descended from a common ancestor. So if that's true, then racism doesn't make any sense because we're all related and any sort of differences that might exist are, are really trivial and not, not that important. Um, so that's, uh, so these two, uh, fairly prominent, uh, free thinkers in the late, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century are beginning to, yeah, really come out, um, and explicitly argue against, against these ideas of scientific racism that were sort of popular around this, uh, this time. Mm. So your book brings together such important findings and really sheds light on a corner of intellectual thought that's been previously overlooked. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think your research can tell us about the intersection of religious and racial views today? Yeah, it's it's a question I sort of consider um, at the end of my book. Um, although I, def- I definitely think, you know, to, to look at uh, contemporary issues I think would be another a book in itself but I, I do talk about that a bit um, at the end of my book so I think well there's a number of different sort of threads that that one can uh, can pick up um, I think the one is to say that I sort of identified I guess in the book that there is this tradition among uh, atheists and other non non-religious people about um, you know questioning ideas of racism. And I definitely, I mean, I think that that trend is, has continued, and I think many or most atheists today have uh, quote unquote uh, progressive views about race. Um, so that's sort of one one thread. But another thing that I kind of talk about in the conclusion is that. Um, atheists do have this kind of skeptical mindset and that it's, it's also informed by um, the sort of the historical fact that atheists have often been um, outsiders in their society, which, which leads them to be skeptical even more so of any uh, sort of received truths in society or, or um, questioning taboos. So in the 19th century, um, this led some atheists to question ideas of racial superiority because that was sort of the the given um, the given belief. But now I think um, uh, today the sort of st- standard view, I guess, is that all races are equal. And so this that that, that fact that it's it's sort of the the conventional view, the accepted view, has led some atheists. I mean, not not all not most, just some, uh, uh, some, uh, segment of, of atheists to kind of question this, this, uh, idea that all races are equal. So sort of, um, anecdotal, but you sort of see, um, on social media, for example, 
some atheist uh, individuals sort of willing to explore ideas that, um, yeah, there are racial differences and racial differences, for example, in IQ. Um, so they're, they're interested sort of in, in breaking, you know, breaking this taboo of, of racial equality. Um, and also in the, in the conclusion, I talk a little bit about uh, the alt-right, this sort of rebranded, I guess, sort of white supremacist movement. Um, but I quote from uh, Richard Spencer, who is sort of the, may it was, I think he, he coined the term alt-right, and I guess he's one of the major figures. Uh, but anyway, I quote uh, an interview from him where he says, you know, the average, um, he's talking about the average member of the alt-right and he, he sort of gives a different demographics. And he said, with regard to religion, they're probably non-religious or atheist. So I think that's, that's sort of a, an interesting thing that there's a sort of secular, um, secular wing of the white supremacist movement. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think in contemporary, uh, world there's all sorts of intersections i guess between uh race and racism and and atheism yeah it's a really interesting way of breaking down uh the way people interact with each other um well nathan i've taken up a lot of your time i want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show and telling us about your book but before you go can you tell us what you're currently working on yeah, so my, my current academic project is um, I'm looking actually at the history of, of the word racism. Um, so that was a sort of an issue that, that I came, uh, came up with, um, like writing this book, um, thinking about sort of the language I might be using in the book. So racism sort of a more, um, the word itself is, is a more modern word that it, it really doesn't become widely used until the, the 20th century. So one of the things I was thinking about as I was writing this book um, was, um, you know, whether whether I should be using the word racism because it's not it's not a term that people in the 19th century had. So that that sort of made me interested in the history of the word. Um, so so the plan is is that will be another book, potentially, um, the so history of the word racism. Um, yeah, so that's, that's sort of my, my other academic project that's, that's happening right now. Great. All right. Well, as I said, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed your book. I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you in person about it. It was very cool to be approached uh, on social media. So that was great. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I will wish you a good afternoon for now. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Nathan Alexander about his new book, Race in a Godless World, Atheism, Race, and Civilization. If you'd like to find out more about Nathan and what he's written, check out his website at nathangalexander.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. 
I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lindland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books in secularism.